like to begin the sitting with a... No, I think I'll wait. Never mind. <laughs> In the talk. Um, Last week, for those of you who were here, we talked about violence because of what happened in Colorado and war because of the ongoing situation in Kosovo and dozens and dozens of other places. And this week as a balance or as another step in that conversation, I'd like to speak about peace, discovering stillness and peace. The Buddha said that there is no higher happiness than peace, nati santi parang sukhang, which is both a statement of his experience, but also something for us to reflect on or contemplate if it's true. There are all kinds of happinesses, of course, in life. But how important the happiness of peace is, of a peaceful heart, of peace around us. And without peace, we would starve. We wouldn't starve from lack of food, but without the peace of moments in a day, without the peace of the rest between breaths or the rest between heartbeats or that delicious piece of going to sleep and getting a good night's sleep, we wouldn't last very long. When I spoke last week, I talked about the forest monastery in Southeast Asia during the time of the Vietnam War when we could see the flashes from the bombs at night and watch the bombers and the planes overhead. We were very close to where there was a lot of fighting in Laos and Cambodia. And how the monastery itself had become a kind of living library or sanctuary of peace in the midst of the insanity of war. And that its purpose wasn't so much to go out and fight against some faction or other in the war, to make it better, but to show, to demonstrate with one's body and one's life and with one's way of being that there is another way. There's another way for human beings. As my teacher Ajahn Chah said, we human beings are constantly in combat, at war, to escape the fact of being so limited limited by so many circumstances we cannot control, struggling against them. But instead of escaping, we continue to create suffering, waging war with what is evil, waging war with what is good, waging war with what is too small or too big, waging war with what is too short or too long, right or wrong, courageously carrying on the battle. The invitation of spiritual life, the Buddha's invitation, is to come back to that place that knows peace in ourselves. 
There are two fundamental kinds of stillness or peace in spiritual life. And peace is so much needed in the world and in our lives. The first is the stillness that comes as a removal from noise and distraction. It's when we find calm circumstances, make the environment quiet, get ourselves still inside because we remove ourselves from the things that are disturbing. Find a quiet place to live. Live in a harmonious or peaceful way in our community. It's the looking for peace by minimizing the conflict and distraction in life or by going off and sitting in a cave or a retreat or a monastery. The second kind of stillness is not that at all, but rather it is the stillness in the midst of activity. The still point, as T.S. Eliot spoke of it, in the midst of the turning world. Sometimes maybe it's the eye of the hurricane Um, As Zen master Suzuki Roshi said, when you can accept the fact that everything changes, when you can accept the truth that everything changes, and find your composure in it, make peace with that truth, then you find yourself in nirvana. That becomes the highest peace when we accept the fact that things are the way they are and find our composure in it. And Ajahn Chah, my teacher again, people would come and complain that there was noise and there were problems and the various um, things that they found disagreeable or the conditions that they didn't like or the circumstances that didn't make the monastery the perfect place that they hoped it would be. And they'd say visitors are disturbing us and the cars that bring people to see you are disturbing us. And he said, I want to know who is disturbing who. He said, is it the noise and visitors disturbing you or is it you go out and disturb the cars? Because you sit there and they're not doing anything. They're just sound. But somebody's disturbing someone. A book called Tales of the Magic Monastery by a friend, Theophane, Father Theophane, who's an old Trappist monk. A tale called The Great Silence. Would you teach me silence, I asked, when I entered the magic monastery? Ah, he seemed to be pleased. Is it the great silence you want? Oh, yes, of course, the great silence. (laughs) Well, where do you think it's to be found, he asked. Deep within me, I suppose. If only I could go deep within. I'm sure I'd escape the noise at last, but it is hard. Will you help me? I knew he would. I could feel his concern and his spirit was so silent. Well, I've been there, he answered. I spent years going in. I did taste that silence apart from things. But one day Jesus came, maybe it was my imagination, and said to me simply, come, follow me. And I went out and I've never gone back. I was stunned, but the silence Oh, I found the great silence, and I've come to see that the noise was inside. 
So the second form of peace is not the peace that's the absence of change and distraction and circumstance, but the stillness in the midst. And of course, one is not in opposition to the other. Outer stillness nourishes inner peace. And in the West, in this culture that's so speedy and complicated, we need to discover ways to nurture peace in our life. Tranquility. It's one of the factors of enlightenment. It's one of the things that brings the heart to freedom, to find peace. And in one way, it means simplifying our life. That's kind of radical, at least as far as the advertising of this country would go. (laughs) Can you imagine ads on TV that say, you don't need any of these things. (laughs) Simplify. Let go. Don't buy. This is a different kind of ad. So simplicity makes life calmer. And that means that we're asked if we undertake a a genuine spiritual life or practice to regularly review our circumstances, to review our ambitions and our values and see what it's time to let go of and what really matters and how complexly are we living and what would our heart choose from the place of wisdom? Not all those outer things, but what does the heart choose? I mean, sometimes it's a choice between two cars, you know, or having time with your kids and time to watch the sunset and time to love one another, even though you don't have the luxury of the second car or whatever it happens to be. So one condition for peace is the simplification of one's life. Another condition is taking quiet time, especially in nature, gardening, hiking, just making time in our life to sit, to walk, to not do anything, to go somewhere where there's no goal in mind, where you're just meandering or wandering. You're not trying to get to the store or finish the 5K run so that then you can go and do something else. That's a different kind of walk or run. You know what I mean. But instead, the time to do nothing. And how many of us have much time in this way where where we don't have a goal where we're not trying to complete something, get a task done so we can get to the next task and the next one, all in little boxes in somebody's schedule book. I mean, I've done it. I look at my book and I say, I don't want to live that life, you know? And then, you know, it's 10 o'clock in the morning. Okay, now it's the time for the next thing. I I promised I'd be there. I guess I better go do it. Peace, in a way, is a release from the bondage of time. from planning and filling up time and spending time, you know, all those ways that we speak of time. When people go on retreat in the residential retreat center after a few days and they start to settle down, a kind of, kind of amazing thing happens. They'll come into interviews and report that 
they were out doing walking meditation or sitting and they got up to go to uh, their room and all of a sudden they felt like a child again. They put their foot down on the earth and the grass was spongy and the, the clouds were scudding overhead and there was some sense that they didn't have to be anywhere and that that moment was complete and full in itself. And in fact, the, you remember when you were little how long a day would be and how incredibly long it was between seasons or between birthdays. It went on and on. The same thing happens on retreat. Which means, of course, that if you're having a hard day on retreat, it seems like it will never end. My God, it's so terrible. And if you're having a great day, that seems like it'll never end either. And the reason it changes, that whole sense of time changes, because we are so much more present in each moment. And then a day becomes this huge thing, instead of getting through each thing to get to the end of it as if it were a race, somehow. I'm sure that you've noticed that time is replacing sex in advertising to us. I mean, it's not completely replaced it, mind you, but there's plenty of sex, too. But there's a lot of advertising about saving you time, giving you more time, you know, getting more time for something or other. It's like... The culture has shifted again one turn and the thing that's most valuable, what's most precious, is your time. And if you buy this, it will... You know, buy this. Who's ever bought anything that gave them much more time? Really, think about it. Oh, does anybody, does anybody have a nice, fancy new computer and have more time because they got it? <laughs> Raise your hand. So peace comes in those moments, and they can be just a moment at work or at home, where we step out of the bondage of time, which is mostly our thought, you know, thinking about what we have to get done and trying to get there. And actually, like that person on the meditation retreat or the child, let ourselves take the cup of tea and look at the person in front of us. and walk to our car, not in order to go someplace else, but just taking each step as it is. Now, this all sounds very charming, but actually it's not always charming. Because a lot of us also learn to keep ourselves busy, because when we stop, we get lonely, or frightened, or we have tears that have yet to be grieved, this unfinished business inside, and so we keep ourselves busy so as not to feel You understand that. So to give ourselves time again also means that we have to be willing to be with ourselves for better and for worse. We can and must learn to make our outer life more peaceful. But the real art of peace, its essence, is inside. As it says in the Dhammapada, the way is not in the sky, the way is in the heart. So what brings peace of this second kind, not the kind of simplification, but what develops the inner stillness in the midst of changing activity? Just as outer peace comes from a certain simplicity and stepping out of time and 
planning and ambition. Inner peace is rests upon or grows out of our capacity to be content. Very simple thing, a kind of gratitude. Because we can spend an awful lot of time discontent. Things are inconvenient, they're not enough, they're too much, being at war with everything, as Ajahn Chah spoke of. And it's hot and you open the windows and it's cold and you gotta get up and get a sweater and you know, you, you, your partner's doing something you don't want and you have a fight and then if the marriage isn't going well then you have a love affair in order to make it, you know, better for you or whatever. And there's no end to discontent. Peace comes from contentment, from our ability to be with what, what is actually here, what we have. So that my teacher in Bombay, Nisargadatta Maharaj, the old guru I studied with, he said, I don't understand you people. You never want what you have. You are always wanting something else. And so you're not happy. He said, it's so simple. Why not? Want what you have and not want what you don't have. You could be happy. It's just that simple. Because what we really want in the end is to be content. And the contentment or the happiness won't come from getting something, because we'll get it for a while, but it will change or grow old or die or wear out or we'll get bored with it. You know how it works. If we want contentment of heart, it comes from being where we are. And we can learn that. I remember when my daughter Caroline was really small. She was three years old, and we were down in Southern California, and we were by this wishing well. There were all these coins in it, I mean, this fountain. And so she wanted to throw her pennies in. I gave her a couple of pennies to throw in. She was going to make a wish, three-year-old. And we'd just been out shopping for some things, and she got a, a new new pair of pink shoes, which she was very happy with, and some balloons. They gave her these balloons at the, the children's shoe store. So she threw her pennies into the fountain, made her wishes, and then you know how parents are. I got really curious. I said, what did you wish for? I said, don't worry, you can still have your wish. It won't, you know, you can tell me. I, I was, this, it may not be true, but I was dying to know, right? And she said, oh, Daddy, I wished for balloons and pink shoes. She was so happy having what she had, that that was her wish. This from Walt Whitman. This is what you should do. Love the earth and sun and animals. Despise riches. Give alms to everyone that asks. Stand up for the stupid and crazy. Devote your income and labor to others. Hate tyrants. Argue not concerning God. <clears throat> Have patience and indulgence toward the people. Re-examine all you've been told at school or church or in any book and dismiss what insults your very soul. And from this, your flesh shall become a great poem. So simple. Contentment. 
And the contentment comes not by knowing and planning and expecting. We have to make plans. I don't mean one throws that out. But we live so much in that reality. And more in the reality of being at rest where we are. Because where we are is where we can love. Love in the future is a fantasy. And love in the past is a memory. But the only place you can love a person or the sky or a rose or whatever it is that matters to you is in the present. And it's not what one knows that matters, but that love. And the Sargadat also said, nothing of value can happen to a mind which knows exactly what it wants. Think about that. Nothing of value can happen to a mind which knows exactly what it wants. Because we only see then that limited thing that we want and all the mystery and amazement around is missing. Meditation is, in a way, a place to discover or renew this quality of contentment. We begin with this simple art of breathing in and out and becoming mindful as the appearances of the body and heart and mind arise and pass away like waves of the ocean. And the idea isn't to make it into a new ambitious project. Now I'm going to meditate and make myself peaceful and have some special state. Because states come and they go like your breath comes and goes. Instead, it's to soften the body and let the mind come to rest. And then, at times, you'll find your pain in the knee or the back or the things that weren't tended to in the body that hurt or fear or longing or fantasy or anger or wounds that we carry. And to be able just to sit in a mindful way and say, yes, bow to this too. This too is part of this human life and find one's peace in the midst of it. So that when you get up and move and drive and meet others, there's that sense of resting in the heart, in the midst of all those things. There are traditional phrases that are used to describe this deepening sense of presence or contentment. One of them is called resting the mind. Learning to sit in meditation to rest the mind. And in this, as one sits, one can consider what we're not at peace with in this world. And to realize that peace is possible, but that it asks of us a letting go, or an acceptance, or a courage to change or take a stand, And if we do, if we let go or accept or take the stand, take the courage that's necessary, peace is possible. Resting the mind is realizing that it's possible to rest where we are and to let go of the things that don't cause us peace. Or to accept the things that are true that we fight against. A second traditional phrase is called continuously resting. You first start by resting the mind and learning to accept, learning to let go. Continuously resting is allowing oneself to sit without being distracted by small things. 
The images of an elephant being pricked by a pin doesn't even bother it particularly. Um, so you sit and then these things come and tap you on the shoulder and say, come on, you've got to worry about this and you better think about that. And you don't actually have to think about it because when you get there, it'll be there and you'll deal with it. It's possible instead to sit and rest and not be distracted so much by the past and the future and be where we are, continuously resting, a certain trust. Then the next is called naively resting. It's like a child, a kind of freshness. Oh, there's a thought, and here's a sound, there's a sensation, and there's pleasure, and there's pain, but in it there's a kind of freshness where we sit and we say, wow, this is amazing, I'm alive. I don't know how that happened, or how long it will last, or what will happen next. And from this place, feeling like a child, you see a bird fly and you go, wow, look at how it flies with that, those feathers through the air. Or like little Eli, you know, who was really interested in tipping this over and then setting it back up and then tipping it over again. Carl Sagan, the astronomer and science writer, said, if you really wish to make an apple pie from scratch, you must first create the whole universe, and then the apple pie will follow. <laughs> so naively resting is seeing that everything depends on everything else, that the apple pie is here because of the stars that cooled and made planets and the seas and the apple trees that took billions of years to evolve. Resting the mind, continuously resting, naively resting, thoroughly resting. It's the next one. Resting in space, letting your awareness become vast like the sky or the ocean, so that the movements of mind and thought and fear and love and desire and all of those things come and go like clouds. Or as it says in the Diamond Sutra, Thus shall ye think of this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, an echo, a rainbow, a dream. And from this place of space, things appear, we experience them, and they disappear to that same space of emptiness that gave them birth. Thoroughly resting. And finally, pacifying the heart. And this one is described as what pacifies the heart is humor and warmth and letting go or letting down. No ambitions. You know, when Ajahn Sumedho was here a couple of weeks ago and spoke, part of what I liked about the way he talked was how unpretentious he was. He just talked about, well, I did this and I was pretty foolish, and then I did that and I was even stupider than that, but it was okay. And there was this very deep kind of self-acceptance about what a fool he was, and he'd laugh about it, and then he'd go on and tell the next story about himself. It's kind of like Ramdas talking about becoming the connoisseur of your neuroses. Right? <laughs> that it's not that you're going to be somebody different if you're wise. You're going to be the same fool. But there's warmth and humor and love and a kind of letting go of how it should be. I read this interview with Thurgood Marshall when he 
retired from the Supreme Court, and somebody asked him, you know, if he looked back on his life, what he would have to say, kind of reviewing all that he'd done. A really remarkable person. And he'd say, well, all I, he said, all I could say about it is, I did the best I could with what I had. He's a very modest person, actually, who made a remarkable kind of change in the whole society because he was the person that brought the case of um, Brown versus the Board of Education that ended segregation in this country. He was the person that brought that case to the Supreme Court, and then he was made a Supreme Court Justice. I did the best with what I had, that's all. So there's this quality of learning, contentment, and ease, and it's a friendship with life as it is. Rilke, this poem, The Swan. This clumsy living that moves, lumbering as if in ropes, through what is not done, reminds us of the awkward way the swan walks. Did you ever see a swan walk? Pretty awkward. And, and to die, which is a letting go of the ground we stand on and cling to every day, is like the swan when he nervously lets himself down into the water which receives him gaily and which flows joyfully under and after him, wave after wave, while the swan, unmoving and marvelously calm, is pleased to be carried, each minute more fully grown, more like a king, composed farther and farther on. The dying or letting go that Rilke speaks to is in each moment, that letting go, to be in the water, to rest like the swan, not to struggle. So this is part of what brings the inner place of peace alive in meditation or one's life, this contentment. And it's not just an idea, but it's really something that one practices and learns. Peace is not just the space between wars. Contentment is not just, oh, things are okay, now I'll be content with them because they're what I want. (laughs) Being a pacifist between wars is as easy as being a vegetarian between meals. (laughs) (laughs) It's the same with contentment. It's not when things are okay, but it's actually the contentment when things aren't okay. Peace also comes with an opening, it requires an opening to the suffering of life. Otherwise we can't find peace. The changing conditions, the worldly winds of praise and blame and gain and loss and pleasure and pain and fame and disrepute, they keep changing. Anybody have that not so for you, where that's not the truth. And so it's opening to the changing conditions, which include pleasure and pain, gain and loss, joy and sorrow. The Buddha begins here, the first noble truth. He says, suffering like rain falls on the just and the unjust, 
no one escapes it. And to awaken to this leads us to freedom and peace. Because if we run and fear and ignore and hide from the sorrows of the world or our own suffering, we simply make the conditions for further pain and further sorrow and eventually for evil because I believe evil is simply suffering untended. We all have losses and grief, some a great measure, and fears, and we carry those of the world, as we spoke of last week, of Kosovo and the violence in our cities and the pain of our children. But suffering is a call for understanding. I mean, in a certain way, one could see the shootings in Colorado as an incredible call for attention from the teenagers um, in our culture. And if we don't pay attention, the suffering will continue. Don't think that it won't. I mean, it's a terrible thing to say, but it's true. So suffering is not something to turn from, but to realize that it wakens us. It wakens our compassion and our depth of being and our understanding. I remember when I went to go teach periodically retreats in Hawaii. And it was about the hardest place to teach meditation. Because people would come on retreat and they'd sit for a little while. And you know, their body might hurt or there'd be this unfinished grief or pain or whatever that comes as one gets quiet. And they'd say, why should I do this? I could go to the beach, maybe smoke a joint, sit, sit out and watch the sunset. There's mangoes over there. I mean, it's so, you know, why do this? There was no motivation. It's said that one can't awaken very well in the heaven realms, nor in the realms, the hell realms either, nor in the realms of great fear and pain, you know, whether it's Kosovo or somewhere else. But that there needs to be the human realm, which is not so pleasant that we get lost in it, and not so painful that we're just in survival. And then suffering becomes grace, becomes a gift because it's that which wakes us up. So it asks us when we face the suffering of life to see for ourselves what entangles the heart, what increases the suffering, and what brings freedom or peace. Not to run away is what peace is about to let the tender heart of sadness and the glorious awakened heart rest within you. And then, said Jogim Trumper Rinpoche, you can make a proper cup of tea. If you're running away from either, you can't really make a cup of tea or serve your friend or your neighbor. And so to find peace, we must discover the capacity of the heart to rest in sorrows, ours and those of the world, and joy in light and dark, to sit in the center, the still point, the still center, and listen. Eddie Hillisum, 
the concentration camp victim wrote, you must be able to bear your sorrow even if it seems to crush you. You will be able to stand up again for human beings are so strong and your sorrow must become an integral part of yourself. You mustn't run away from it. Do not relieve your feelings through hatred. Do not seek to be avenged on others for the, those too, however bad they may seem or act, sorrow at this very moment as well. Give your sorrow all the space and shelter in yourself that is its due. For if everyone bears their grief honestly and courageously, if you do, instead, and, and instead reserve the space, in, um, if, if everyone bears their grief honestly and courageously, the sorrow that now fills the world will abate. Will abate. To bear one's sorrows. Sometimes I've gone to do kind of organizational consulting as a psychologist, usually with Dharma organizations, but not always. And in difficulties when they're feuding and fighting, you know how it happens. Spiritual communities the same as any other kind of business or marriage. And mostly I just go and I sit and I listen to begin with. I sit in the center and I listen. And it helps so much just to listen and hear people's pain. And they're angry at first, but under their anger is their hurt and their fears. And you know it as well in your own business or marriage. What it means to make yourself peaceful and to listen in an honorable way in oneself or to one's lover or to one's community. There is this group called the Compassionate Listening Project, some of whom come on retreats. And they've sent teams of trained listeners they still do, around the world, to sit and listen to the people that no one else wants to listen to in the Western world. They, they went to Libya and sat down and listened to Muammar Gaddafi's experience, what it was like for him. And they went in you know, the 80s to Nicaragua and sat down with the Sandinistas and the Contras. And they went to Iraq and to Cambodia. And they sit down and they listen in particular to those people that are excluded and no one in the Western world wants to listen to. People are afraid that peace will make them weak, that if they're peaceful they won't be strong enough or they won't be empowered enough or they won't be active enough. This is from the Tao Te Ching. If you want to be a great leader, you must learn to follow the Tao. Stop trying to control. Let go of fixed plans and concepts and the world will show you how it governs itself. The more prohibitions you have, the less virtuous people will be. The more weapons you have, the less secure people will be. The mark of a tolerant woman is freedom from her own ideas. Tolerant like the sky, all-pervading like sunlight, firm like a mountain, supple like a tree in the wind, she has no destination in view and makes use of anything life happens to bring her way. Nothing is impossible for her. Because she has let go, she can care for the people's welfare and greet each day 
as a mother cares for her child. It's really a different form of strength, which is the strength of flexibility and ease. I received a letter yesterday, or Saturday, from my good friend Dina Metzger, who is a writer and a poet and an activist. And during the Kuwait-Iraq war, remember that one, the, the one before this one that we've been involved in, she was so distressed that she went to the concentration camps in Europe and sat there on the earth just digging her fingers into the soil at Birkenau and the bones that what, what, what was left and asking, how come we keep repeating this? What do I have to learn? There must be some lesson. And as she sat and she vowed to stop making enemies of anyone, she began to look inside to see where she was not at peace. And the questions that she raised were, who is your inner dictator? You know, it's not just Slobodan Milosevic or whoever you might think of. And do you have an inner Siberia? You know, a place where things are stashed away for years and years. And who is starving inside? Who are the ones that are hungry and not attended to? And what is the inner racism internalized as well as the pain of racism outside us? We really have to look in ourselves. And is there inner ethnic cleansing? Or there inner beings, dimensions of ourselves that are honored and other ones where there's apartheid and segregation and that aren't honored? So she didn't just project it out on the world, but she said, I have to see it and learn how my own consciousness is part of this and contributes to it. Stop the making of enemies. And she began then to look outwardly at Catholics and Jews and Arabs and Muslims and Vietnamese and Chinese and Serbs and Croats and all of these people, not as tribes, but as individuals who also had this task to do in themselves. From Gandhi, if one does not practice nonviolence in one's personal relations with others and hopes to use it in bigger affairs, one is vastly mistaken. If we can't see it in ourselves, in our personal affairs, in our own body and mind, Mutual forbearance is not nonviolence. Immediately you get the conviction that nonviolence is the law of a wise life. You have to practice it toward those who act violently and in yourself toward that which is violent in you. If the conviction is there, the rest will follow. So Dina Metzger was there And since that time, she's convened a series of elders' councils here in the U.S. and elsewhere. And her notion was this. She said the extinction of species, the perpetuation of warfare, the the, um, ending of many indigenous cultures, all those things that we know, the suffering that's so visible, 
is created by human beings. And there's no simple way out, but maybe if we make a council and sit with our elders and just talk about the sufferings in ourselves, our own struggles, and in the world around us that are not peaceful, that are terrible, that maybe by listening to one another, something new will be born. And so she's held a series of different councils just to listen to elders in various places. And this letter that she wrote, she was, during this last few weeks, she's been in Africa and in Zimbabwe. And she said when she went to Africa, her her husband asked her, what do you want from this trip, trip in Africa? And she said, I want to learn to sit in council with the elders of Africa, and I want to sit in council with the elephants. That was her, her wish. She said, I don't know what, I'm not going with some idea of what I should learn, but I just want to sit with these people and maybe the elders will have something to say. And so she went, in fact, to sit with the um, elders in Zimbabwe in council, um, with the Dare, they were called, and with a a community of um, medicine people or shamans. And she said, after she spent some time with them, Um, she said, and they sat together and spoke. What came to them was um, not terribly surprising, but a little bit surprising across the cultural gap, because the vision that came was in sitting in council with one another, they realized that they had to do the healing in their families before they could do any healing of the animals or the tribes or between nations. And each elder in that council thought, had, thought about and spoke about their own families, their grandparents and their cousins and uncles and the kind of conflicts that were there and said, maybe we need to do this work before the other work can follow. That's like Gandhi saying that if you really believe in nonviolence um, and understand it, it has to start with one's own self and one's personal relations. So they did that. And she has this whole description of going to these African tribal families and watching them come in council and start to work out things that had been um, conflict, conflicted for decades. It's very moving. And then she said, after that, they decided to try to go and see the elephants. And she's writing more detail, but I'll read the part in this letter. On January 6th, which was Epiphany, we were on our way to Chobe, an animal preserve in Botswana known for some of the largest elephant herds in Africa. And um, my husband asked me, how does one sit in council with elephants? I said, I don't know. I don't even know how to imagine it. But now I've learned something, and I'll tell you what I've learned. What I learned is that if one waits, the animals may come forth and teach you. There were five of us, and my husband and I were in the open flatbed of a truck. We went into the midst of the elephant reserve, and I had the hope and intention of sitting in council with the elephants for the sake of mutual survival, theirs, because they're dying out, and ours. I prepared for this for two years without knowing how to prepare. I had prayed, visioned. 
So we sat there for several hours quietly, simply in prayer and invocation. And then I saw an elephant deliberately walk toward us from three quarters of a mile away. When he came to the truck, he faced us directly, acknowledged us, then walked toward us until we were four feet from each other. He then looked me directly in the eye for a very, very long time, 20 minutes perhaps. He stood there and I sat there and we looked at one another. Then he nodded and went away. (laughs) Afterward, as we were leaving the park, dozens of elephants, perhaps 40 or more, came down from the hills. We left slowly and they aligned themselves in a row for a half mile along the riverbed as if to unmistakably address us as we exited the park. What was transmitted and what occurred, I still do not have words for. I will have to wrestle with this for the rest of my life. But for those who are with me, we will never be the same. Our former understanding of the nature of the universe is irrevocably shattered. Accordingly, I think it means that we are not the only intelligent, conscious species in the universe, and so we are not so alone with ourselves. Perhaps it means that we may have assistance even from those we have so deeply injured, and this gives me the greatest hope of all. And in that way, peace comes from contentment, and peace comes from facing the sorrows of the world and opening the heart and listening. And peace also comes from a forgiving heart. I mean, if you're species is decimated and you can still come and counsel and listen and not turn yourself away but face what's difficult in its nakedness then there is hope and recently a woman who is a a senior student in the community was giving a dharma talk i heard and she was talked about she talked about being raped as a young woman 30 years ago, um, was a terrible story because she was pregnant. She was five or six months pregnant. And it was in her apartment. Someone followed her and tied her up um, and raped her. And she said, yet I was not traumatized by this. It didn't, as it might for many people, be a trauma that affected my whole life. And she said, and I want to tell you why in this Dharma talk. She said, because after the experience of being raped. I was tied up with ropes um, and I was there. Um, Before this man left, he looked at me and he said, are you cold? And he put a blanket on me. And then as he went out the door, he said, I'm sorry, I couldn't help it and walked out the door and closed the door. And she said, somehow something came over me even in that circumstance where I believed him. And so it changed the whole trauma of this terrible, terrible event because he had made a tiny little window as he left with that blanket and those few words for me to see something of his soul even though he had treated me in this terrible way. To find peace and to be peace, because if we want the world to be peaceful, we have to be the peace that we want. It's not a small thing. 
I think it's a grave and um, enormous and wonderful task, but a very hard one to make peace with our own bodies and hearts, to make peace in our families, to make peace in our communities and even with those who are, you might say, our enemies, to find contentment, to not turn away from suffering, and to keep the heart open and forgiving in the midst of it. This is the great peace, the place where stillness and action and response all come together. So let's sit for a minute. Peace of the waving grasses to you, peace of the night sky to you, peace of the soft rains to you, peace of the changing seasons to you, peace of the heart to you and all you touch. few more very brief announcements and then uh, a little prayer and chant to end. First of all, um, there's someone who needs a ride to Peacock Gap in San Rafael. Is there anyone who can offer a ride to San Rafael? Anyone going that way who can give a ride? Looking? Yes. Okay. Um, And he will meet you in this um, far right corner here, that person. So thank you for offering that. Um, The second uh, is that someone came up and said that uh, for those who will be going to San Quentin this evening um, for the vigil for for Manny Babbitt, um, you could um, perhaps carpool together and he will meet you here by this uh, painting of the um, uh, goddess of compassion with a thousand arms and a thousand eyes. So for those of you who want to carpool to San Quentin, you can meet there. Um, we have a s- lecture series devoted to the integration of Eastern uh, meditation practices and Western psychotherapy that Spirit Rock is co-sponsoring with 
a number of other people. And John Tarrant, who's a wonderful Zen master and clinical psychologist, will be speaking on May 25th at St. John's Church in Berkeley. Um, and uh, that's on a Tuesday night. Next week we'll, we'll have some flyers for that for those who are interested. And then the last is that, um, I, and I think I mentioned this last week as well, that Dorothy Robinson, who was one of the first people to work to create Spirit Rock Center, and a dear friend and a wonderful woman, was killed uh, um, in a river rafting accident um, about two weeks ago, died in a river rafting accident. Um, knowing her, it was a great way to die. I mean, she loved the rivers and she loved the wilderness. And she wasn't all that well that day, apparently, but she wanted to go anyway. She said, I'm just absolutely, supremely happy, and I'm going to go anyway. Um, and so I'd like us to do a very simple chant um, tonight, again, in the spirit of Dorothy and for Manny Babbitt as some support. And uh, as an offering of peace for the world. And I think the prayer, we did metta last time, or the chant, very, very simple one with tonight's talk. Um, for those who haven't come before, in the Buddhist tradition, there's a text that gives the complete and perfect wisdom uh, teachings in 80,000 verses. And then the shorter one is 800 verses, but it's summarized in one syllable, which makes it much easier given that it's already 9.15. Um, and the reason that it's uh, the, the teachings of perfect wisdom in one syllable, this is considered to be the, the first sound and the last sound. It's the beginning of sound and the end of sound. Um, uh, so it's the seed syllable, ah, and it's this teaching of wisdom because it's the sound of letting go. And the letting go is the letting go that carries one, Dorothy in this case, um, to let go into the light, to trust and merge with that which is beyond this body and heart and mind, to really be carried um, by that trust and that understanding. Um, and it's the letting go in ourselves that allow us to rest in true peace, so that our lives then become that which we would bring uh, in back to the earth. So we'll chant or sing ah for a little bit and then rest in the stillness at the end. Ah. Uh... 
remember the clear light, the pure, clear light from which everything in the universe comes to which everything in the universe returns. Let go into it, trust it, merge with it. It is home. Rest your heart in the place of peace with yourself, your loved ones, your community, and the world. Thank you. Good night. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.